welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest IOM3 Investigates podcast. My name's Mark Glover, and I'm the commissioning editor uh, at Materials World and Clay Technology Magazines here at the Institute. So this episode, my first episode on, on, on the podcast series, is on something very important and something that I think is becoming uh, more prevalent perhaps given the last 12 months or so that we've all been experiencing and that's that's well-being and, and mental health personally to me it's something that's that's important to me and so I'm really kind of enthusiastic about being uh, transparent about this having conversations about uh, this topic and as well um, so from the workplace perspective as well and being transparent about about stories that are taking place in the workplace so I'm really pleased that this conversation is, is happening and having this opportunity um, to do this but I suppose from the institute's point of view and and the magazine's point of view our readership tends to focus on a uh, couple of sectors we we deal uh, with with academia with research um, and also manufacturing so from those sectors uh, we managed to get a couple of speakers and so from the academic arena we've got Jane Rema who leads the School of Physical Sciences Wellbeing Group at the University of Liverpool good morning Jane how are you morning Mark I'm good thank you um, I've also got uh, Dr. Alison Savage, who's an academic at the university and is also uh, uh, heavily involved with, with the wellbeing group as well. And good morning to you, Alison. Morning. Morning. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. Um, so for the manufacturing um, side, I've invited um, Adrian Huxley, who's uh, the workshop and facilities manager who works at uh, Singer Instruments, who are a, a manufacturer of scientific instruments um, down in, in Somerset in, in the west of England. So uh, just to check in. Good morning, Adrian. Good morning, Mark. Morning. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. So I'll be speaking to Jane, Alison and, and Adrian a little bit later on about some of their stories and the initiatives that they've put in place. Uh, but my first guest actually is, is Heather Beach, who is the um, founder and director at uh, a company called The Healthy Work Company. And Heather and I actually are former colleagues. We used to work together in, in health and safety and in publishing. And I got Heather on because we want to talk about some of the sort of more practical ways of, of dealing what we're all sort of going through so morning Heather how are you I'm really good thank you very much Mark how are you I'm okay thanks 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 for coming on um but before we go into these questions can you because um what you're you're the Healthy Working Company, I think, is a really interesting and set up, fairly newish as well. But can you just explain briefly, if you can, a bit about that company and, um, and what you're doing there? Yeah, as you know, Mark, you and I were working together in the health and safety sector for a number of years. And I was a director of the uh, UBM, which was a big FTSE 250 company. And I sort of, sort of thought to myself, I was approaching a big birthday and I'm afraid it wasn't 40. Do I want to be working for a big bureaucratic corporate for the rest of my life? Or do I want to do something that I'm really, really interested in, where I think I 
can make a bigger difference. So I set up Healthy Work Company um, and I set it up at a, a good time and a bad time, really. So I set it up at a time when um, mental health was becoming of more importance to organizations. And so that was useful because what we do is we do training and strategy in the mental health and well-being arena with um, mostly large organizations, some UK, some global now with the um, advent of being able to do stuff via Zoom. We're doing it more globally, too. Um, I say it was at a bad time, too, because the conversation about mental health and well-being at the time when we set up was really not the conversation that I wanted to encourage. So I come very much from a positive psychology angle. Um, so that's all about how to encourage uh, thriving, how to move from sort of moderate mental health into thriving. And the conversation in the UK at the time was all around destigmatizing mental illness. And I think we kind of got stuck at that point. So um, where I really think we are hopefully now starting to move is much more into the place of looking all around the mental health continuum, uh, how we can all move from where we are into a position where we're flourishing as much as possible, even through adversity. Yeah, great. That's in that final point. I mean, you know, the last 12 months, there's people have been going through a hell of a lot of ad- ad- adversity and um, been up against it. And just to like hone down on something, COVID-19 and everything that's been going on, it, it, it's a real great piece of fuel for people who suffer with anxiety. Anxiety, I think, is if you're out of control, if you don't know what's going on, if you, you, know, you want to be tight, you want to know what's happening. And with COVID and the advent of COVID, everything's just gone out the window. I mean, everything. And, and um, someone like me, actually, thrives a lot on routines and stuff. That, that's really changed. So I wanted to sort of touch on on that and some of the things that people can do to sort of negate and sort of perhaps stop those, those not stop, because I think you have to live, you have to sort of manage, but uh, just to sort of work with it, really. And one of those two points of some of the, the things I think that comes up a lot is this, this idea of self-awareness and self-compassion. They're quite common words that we hear a lot. They sound quite nice, don't they? But can you define them? What exactly are these things? Can you give a definition, Heather, at all of these? I think self-compassion is something very different, actually. Self-compassion is is, is a, a quite a recent idea, and I really love it. Um, I personally um, have massively benefited from this idea because I'm a bit of a con- perfectionist, control freak, ambitious, you know, stress head. <laughs> and so actually being able to say nobody's perfect to myself, that is, nobody's perfect. Um, and actually sometimes good enough is, is just you know, enough, Um, you're enough, all of these types of things. And to understand that there will always be demands that I can't meet, you know, and to choose what I'm going to not do in favor of what matters most. I think that's a fascinating conversation, but I think that's very separate to self-awareness. Self-awareness is critical and when you're talking about something like dealing with anxiety dealing with anything that life throws at us understanding ourselves and how we and how we actually tackle that is such an individual thing so there's a a wonderful um, author in positive psychology called Csikszentmihalyi and he said that the recipe for happiness cannot be copied from individual to individual so you might find certain things that actually are you, you know universal Universally will work. We talked about exercise, didn't we, Mark, when we last had a chat? And that is, you know, something which evidence shows will close off the stress cycle. So it's a useful thing for everybody to do. 
But there are all sorts of other interventions and it really depends on how, what you enjoy, how you're wired, what you're prepared to explore, you know, which, and and just, I think the important message is, is not to give up because there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different interventions that you can try. So I know for me, when I was struggling, um, a few years ago, um, I found that learning was absolutely critical for me. So I started to learn about the brain, how the brain works. That gave me, that empowered me to think, okay, now how am I going to deal with this differently? Other people, it will be totally different. It might be, you know, more self-care type initiatives, you know, uh, but um, there are lots and lots and lots of interventions that are being that are being studied. I don't think anyone should not go through therapy at some point, though. I think therapy is such an important thing to understand ourselves better. So somebody to ask us the right questions, ask us some good questions is different to going down the pub and talking to a mate. So no, that's interesting. When we speak to Adrian um, later, we're, we're going to be going to be touching on that on this. I think that's that's going to come up, and he'll be wholeheartedly behind that. On those uh, these sort of key protective factors, so touched on, you know, exercise and nutrition, perhaps, and getting sleep, better sleep, and we're all told how to how these things are good for you, which they are. You know, we we know know that they are, but. I suppose from your point of view, Heather, how important are they really? I mean, should we be getting anxious about not doing these things? Are they really good to, to sort of to really try and put in place? They are. The t- generally, it seems the first things that go out of the window when we're struggling, aren't they? Or, you know, yeah. if, we're, if we're struggling, like for me, I then go and eat all the rubbish stuff in the cupboard. I want the chocolate and I want the potatoes and I want the cheese and the crackers. Um, you know, I don't want to feed my gut with good bacteria to make sure that I'm, you know, mentally healthy. But actually, if we can actually get ourselves into doing those things, it makes a massive difference. Sleep is critical good sleep between seven and nine hours ideally and I was brought up in the Thatcher era and in those days we believed that you know sleep was for wimps and not everybody needed it but actually getting that sleep really enables us then to be able to make better decisions during the day because if if not we're relying on you know habit habitual functions which aren't necessarily going to be supporting the way we want to be as opposed to the way you know our brain just takes shortcuts effectively so um, yeah the, the go-to place when we're struggling I think to start with looking at those key protective factors and what we can do to um, to actually incorporate us back into our lives but they are not by any means the only areas that you can start there are other yeah other factors as well like yeah gratitude even just getting outside and looking at particularly it's quite nice here today just looking at the the sky and looking at and hearing it's cliched isn't it but hearing the birds singing and stuff like that it does does make it going for a walk savoring little things having a nice coffee perhaps how can you is it getting that routine thing or Uh, i think so much pressure on it our brain works through habits, doesn't it? It's a predictor, our brain. So if if we actually set up, and, and that's the best way, small habit changes, which can stick. So they, they if they're small things, ideally, maybe we hook them onto another habit. So I do this, then I do this, then I do this, or I do this at the same time as that. All of those things will really support us. It's, it's a lot to do with habit and routine. So for me, for example, um, I got into a habit when I woke up of scrolling through 
through social media for an hour and you know time just can go oh it's gone hasn't it and then you get on with your work you bent over your laptop all day so now I have a new habit which is I get out of bed I have a glass of water I put my dog walking trousers on and I walk the dog that gives me a completely different experience of the whole day because I've just made those small that small change I love that. Yeah, totally agree. Um, let's drill down a bit more, um, I suppose, technically of what goes on in the body when you're in a stressful situation. And uh, as someone who's had suffered a little bit with, with panic attacks a while ago, when such a thing happens, it's just you, you, you're you out of it. You don't know what's going on. It's the most scary thing in the world and, and all, all clarity goes out the window. But is there a, is there a way of, of sort of recognising it or recognizing a, a stress a stress reaction how can you do this heather and and sort of what what can you look out for is this possible in, yeah in certain circumstances yes it's possible because we can actually feel it happen to us can't we we can feel yeah. that you know for me when my tax return comes through the door um i <laughs> automatically get into my heart starts to beat you know <laughs> i start to breathe really <laughs> you know yeah. oh my goodness me i feel that feeling of panic which is my stress response system coming into play and actually, you know, causing these bodily functions to move into action. That's what it's effectively doing. It's, it, 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 it should be a helpful response, shouldn't it? But in certain situations, we're not necessarily even aware of it. You know, like if I'm sat watching a murder or a horror film, um, I might get the same stress responses uh, going off in my body and not even particularly be aware. And we're in that all the time, really. So closing off the stress cycle is a really important thing to do. Exercise is the best way of doing that. A breathing is another brilliant way, you know, mindful breathing. So thinking about something like box breathing or deep breathing or whatever technique you like, which brings regularity and smoothness back to the breath. That's the type of thing we're, we're looking for. And then ultimately, you know, when we end up with that, with that long-term stress, where we've been in it for such a long time and our body budget just can't cope anymore, then it's writing lists and, okay, how can I rationalize my way out of this? Who can I connect with and delegate stuff to and ask for help from and, and all of those other things as well. Like that frame was budget, stress budget. Body budget. Oh, look, I absolutely love Lisa Feldman Barrett. She's written the best book. She wrote, she wrote about emotions and um, she's written one called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. It's fantastic. She uses the word body budget all the way mm. through. And it's this idea that, you know, our brain needs certain things in order to function and it uses our budget uh, that we and and if we for example are well rested we've eaten the right things we've you know we've got more budget to play with that's yeah. really where we are Makes sense. yeah that's really interesting circling back i suppose to what i was uh, saying at the beginning about being in control and, and sort of try and just controlling what one can control and influence is is is, is the key i know it's clear it makes a lot of sense but how important is is this really just to sort of get things in into perspective it's easier said than done though isn't it Oh, it's totally easier said than done. You know, the Stoics, they used to say, well, if you can't control it, you shouldn't worry about it. And that's such a mean, it's so difficult, isn't it? It's such a mean yeah. thing to say to somebody. And even say to yourself, I really like the way that Stephen Covey rationalized it with an, another circle, which is what can you influence? So, um, and I, I always, if I have a problem, I plot it. I genuinely do. I think... So, you know, right now I've got my dad in a home and he's not happy. There's, but, but I look at it and I think, 
I cannot do anything about the progress of my dad's dementia. I can't do anything about where he lives because there's nothing, you know, we've got the best possible solution. It's not good, but it's the best possible solution. So what can I influence? Okay, well, I can influence, you know, uh, his happiness to a certain degree by calling him regularly, sending him Mars bars in the post. I can support my sister who's living closer by, who really does, it really upsets. That's the influence I can have. And that's where I focus my energy because we've only got a limited amount of energy to go around. And as human beings, we focus an awful lot and areas which we can't control at all absolutely i wrote down my notes here heather when we sort of spoke last and there was something i wrote down we're all weathering the same storm but in very different boats that's kind of quite apt at the moment isn't it with stuff with stuff that's that's going on we're all under you know everyone's struggling in a different way but there's some comfort in that do you think that can be taken um i think there has been a degree of uh, for example um a fear of missing out was something that we all struggled with, wasn't it? And now, I th- and we've all been in the same boat. We haven't been able to. And I think there might be a greater acceptance moving forward of people that don't want to go out and don't want to do those things anymore. Because, you know, when we look back, we were living in a completely mad way, weren't we? I'm not going to go back to being on the motorway all the time, running around the UK to train people when I can equally do it from behind my computer on Zoom. It's a different experience, but, you know, I, I'm I think we're all making decisions like that. But I think that there is a very different uh, perspective from somebody who is in a comfortable situation, who has maybe, I don't actually have this, but it'd be nice if I did, an office at the bottom of the garden, you know, and a partner who's supportive living with them, um, as opposed to, you know, living in a a one bedroom flat with kids or, or something like that. We're in a completely different boat. And for me, that has to be where we look next is well-being in society because you cannot take the individual out of the society in which they live and politics, how we choose to run our governments, what we choose to think of as success and what we choose to ask from our governments as citizens that we should be looking at our citizens' well-being and, and creating situations where we can all have opportunities to be well as opposed to it being something like uh, you know UK PLC like it was when I was growing up so I think we have to start to look to society not just individuals not just organizations it has to be in our politics too Thanks, Heather. Uh, that, that's really interesting, and it's good uh, to see uh, a lot of sort of nodding faces as well on on with with the other with the other attendees, um, which, which is good. Um, stick around, Heather, because I'll circle back to you later on because there's another question to um, that I want want to ask. Right now, as I mentioned at the beginning, a big part of our readership and membership at the institute and for the magazine and materials world is academia and 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 research. We cover a lot on new research, new novel research in the materials cycle. But I suppose in terms of, of teaching from, from an academic's point of view, things have, have sort of really changed. In fact, last April, we ran a, a small Q&A with a couple of academics, uh, just as the pandemic was really starting to, to kick off about how they were doing in terms of, I suppose, teaching more so face-to-face, really, how they were having to do Zooms, uh, Zoom calls and, and, and the like, and how things were changing. But it got me thinking more so about uh, academics who are unable, as laboratories get get shut down, to carry out research as well, which is another another huge part. And I wanted to sort of 
follow on from what we did in April and find out a little bit more about what what universities were doing in in both of those regards. And I'm, I'm lucky enough we we have some good contacts at the at the University of of Liverpool. And I was you know, even lucky to get put in touch with Jane Reamer at the University of of Liverpool, who leads the School of Physical Sciences well-being group again which is a fairly new initiative and I've got Jane with me and I've also got Dr Alison Savage as well who is, is an academic at the university and, and part of of the well-being, well-being group um, but but Jane if I can be, begin with you if, if if that's okay thanks thanks for coming on it's, it's gonna be really interesting to hear about uh, this initiative can, can we do a bit of a, a 101 about it and can you just sort of explain how how this initiative came about when it came about and was there some sort of catalyst for for it for it coming to fruition yeah sure so I set the team up back in 2018 actually and it was after I attended a mental health first aid workshop at the University of Liverpool so back then I had concerns actually about the well-being of some of our researchers and staff in the School of Physical Sciences so our school is home to around over 100 leading academics and over 180 researchers across the departments of chemistry, maths and physics. And from working closely with some of those individuals on a daily basis, I could tell that they were struggling with their own well-being. And I wanted to find out more and see how, how I could help uh, in some way. And hence, that was my the reasons why I enrolled on the workshop. So the workshop helped me gain a deeper understanding of mental health in the higher education sector, uh, particularly research intensive institutions. And I quickly learned that due to working in high pressurised environments, many individuals who were struggling with their mental health and well-being were reluctant to reach out and ask for help. And it almost seemed like people were suffering in silence. So this, coupled with the continuing shocking statistics that we all see every day on on mental health, really inspired me to set up a wellbeing team within the School of Physical Sciences, a team really that could offer support and encouragement to our staff and researchers who were struggling. And I wanted to try and change the research culture so that we could all study and work in, in an environment where it's safe and acceptable to reach out and ask for help. I think that people need to to take their well-being seriously as it can have damaging effects um, and and Heather's also touched on that as well and some of these effects can be long-term. I wanted to create a culture where everybody can be open and honest and indeed it's it's actually it's okay not to be okay because ultimately nobody should should feel alone and, and should suffer in silence. So back then I initially put a call out across the school asking for volunteers and I assembled a diverse team of researchers, academic and professional services staff across the school and most of them of whom are now mentally health uh, mental health first aiders thanks jen and and on that are you able do you have any sort of initiatives that you can share with us anything sort of tangible? oh yeah we've we've been hard at work um <laughs> past few years actually so discussions soon got underway and our first workshop was back in november 18 which was a great success uh, and well attended with delegates having a go at tai chi we had the staff from our sports center giving delegates live health checks and many many 
many people attended the powerful mental health presentations, which were incredibly moving as well for a lot of people. And then our next workshop was was in March 19. And at that workshop, we invited a psychologist and mindfulness tutor who gave a talk on mindfulness and meditation. This was, this was fantastic. Attendees really enjoyed the meditation as it was also something, it was a technique that they could take away with them and practice themselves, which was really beneficial. Uh, something else that we've done, which which I'm really proud of, is our uh, our well-being room that we have. So feedback from each of our events informed us that people wanted a space to take some time out away from the labs, the offices and the teaching spaces. So with that in mind, we refurbished a room and created and, and transformed this into our well-being room, which is located in the Department of Chemistry. So this tranquil room, it provides a place for all staff and students in the School of Physical Sciences who just need that quiet and calming space to relax for a while. And the launch of the opening of the room coincided with World Mental Health Day in October 19. And we invited a representative from the mental health charity Mind who cut the ribbon to the room and we made it an eventful occasion. We included um, a charity cake bake sale we had some musicians play some relaxing music it, it was lovely it was great and we now have this room where people can just turn up and just you know just 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 take that time that they need which was brilliant I must tell you as well that something else I'm, I'm really proud of there's so many things that we've done it's hard to, to fit everything in um but we res- we um we had multiple nominations, uh, the wellbeing team that we received, which was for the 2019 University of Liverpool Staff Awards. And this was under the category of the health and safety wellbeing category. We were absolutely delighted as a team to receive this recognition because back then we'd only been going 12 months, yet we'd, we'd done lots of workshops and initiatives. And to me personally, it just makes me feel really proud of the multiple activities and initiatives that we've delivered in quite a relatively short space of time, really. And given that our well-being roles are in addition to our day jobs, so we don't do this full time. This is just when we can fit it in. So it, it was a really proud moment for, for me and for us as, as a well-being group. Yeah, great. Great to get that acknowledgement as well. Yeah, that's 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 really good. Alison, could I come on to you now with with a question? And it's, um, I suppose, given your your role as 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 an academic, it was funny when when we were chatting, myself, Jane, and 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 you prepping for this. And I'm not sure who it was, but we talked about this this idea of you know how how much of an effect it must have on academics being taken away from the laboratory and and everything the past twelve months. But how has it been? I mean, for you as an academic, that sort of comfort zone, if you like, taken away. How has how has it been for you? It's sort of had its ups and downs, I think. So I'm a postdoctoral researcher, so my role is in the lab. So when we were told we weren't allowed in anymore, it was a bit of a a shock. You know, you you sort of, you know, your role, you go in every day and you go to the lab and, and, you know, that's, that's what you're used to. So the idea that we'd all be working at home was, was a lot to take in. But at the same time, I think we've all I think people have adapted in the in the best way they can. I think, you know, we, we all took the time to focus more on writing because that was all we had. <laughs> and uh, I think it's people have 
adapted and done the best they can but I think it's definitely difficult and going back to work after the time where we were at home was particularly challenging because it was again another unknown on how we were going to work in a lab sort of socially distanced and how other people are going to behave because if you go to the supermarket and you see how people are socially distanced in the supermarket you sort of it makes you slightly apprehensive on what it's going to be like in your workplace so I think it's one of these things where it was just a lot of uncertainty but at the same time I do think that we've learned that we can work at home as well I think there's so, so we can be trusted to get on with our work and we can you know we can have international meetings from our, our rooms at home and you know so I think there's some elements of I think we will take a few things from what we've learned now and you know go and, and use them and, and move forward yeah. with them but I yeah. do think it was definitely a bit of a shock to the system I think <laughs> yeah I, 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 it's a really good point I think a lots of people are learning to adapt at the moment and I think a lots of people are being surprised in how they can adapt and how things are we are putting things in place but personally we, we're working on working on a magazine we've managed to publish magazines monthly remotely and and stuff which which is sort of un, unheard of being and stuff if anything it it's it, it sort of adds a different another layer of working and you come out of it and go crikey we, we managed to do that I, I, that's a smaller i think a smaller example compared to what what you guys are going through but um i think also uh, this is another thing we, we discussed i think jane jane mentioned this about academics obviously the very nature of what they do the very nature of how you work things are very black and white aren't they it's uh, it's scientific it's evidence based so something like covid while scientifically we know what it is the effect must have been pretty tricky for for you and your colleagues to, to to get your head around was that was that something that you found found as well Alison I think all workplaces went through it I I, I just yeah, yeah. I don't necessarily know that like it was just academia I think obviously there was the, the challenges of not having your workplace to work in but I, d- I don't know I do think that it just sort of led people to be a bit creative on what they did yeah. so I think there are a lot of scientific reviews that have now come out which might not have ever been written if we hadn't have had COVID so I think maybe yeah. people just took the opportunity to expand and branch out and focus on things that maybe might have been put on the back burner if we were still in the labs yeah I think yeah absolutely yeah. and are you looking forward to going back to normal whatever that is <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I think that's a tough one because I I've quite I've sort of got used to like I think I've sort of slightly better at planning things so I think because of the time in our lab now where we have to like book shifts and stuff we have to work a lot more um rigidly I think it's actually benefited me in a way I think maybe like I say I think there are things that we could keep I think there are certainly things that like we could carry on doing and get better and improve with so I think maybe I don't think normal I don't think we should go back to normal I think we should definitely improve from what we've what we've achieved in the last year totally agree Jane, if I could just swing swing back to you, if, if that's okay. Um, yeah. I, I I think mental health reaching out to people or sort of saying to to employees, if you, if you like, how how are you or you know are you okay? We touched on is it you know can be a bit, a bit tricky. And when when you're offering the the services that you are offering to 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 researchers and and staff, perhaps some are more forthcoming, some are a bit more reluctant. How have you sort of found the take up of it? if you like have people come forward and responded 
Yeah, it, it's tricky because a lot of people uh, just want to get on with their work and, you know, it is very high pressurised and when, you know, when they're doing research and they don't necessarily put their well, well-being and mental health first. So what, what we've done, recognising the impact that COVID's had over the last year, we con- conducted what we called Shout Out Awards and another another initiative that we've done uh, January this year, actually. So it was a very small initiative, but it had quite a big impact and it was a way to reach out uh, to our academic community. Uh, it was a thoughtful way to acknowledge somebody's hard work, given that the staff and the pressures that the staff and students have been under throughout the pandemic. And it was just a, a small way to say thank you, really, that somebody did something, somebody did for you. We had a tremendous response with 80 nominations received across the school and those nominated received a certificate and shortlisted candidates as well uh, received a little voucher. Uh, the, reci- the recipients of these shout out awards were, were quite shocked, actually, because it was unexpected. They were delighted as well. And it was lovely just to read through all the, the nominations and the reasons of why individuals were nominated through such a challenging time. That was really interesting. Uh, we, we also just recently done an anonymous survey within our school community, which captured everybody's thoughts and feelings specifically in relation to anxiety. So what we done, we created uh, virtual whiteboards where people could uh, post anonymously and share their concerns. Now, this survey raised many issues relating to COVID-19 and the lockdowns that we've had. It also included increased anxiety, burnout, difficulties balancing homeschooling and childcare issues with their research, uh, as well as worries around returning to campus. And we also realised that many PhD students and researchers feel as though they're compensating for lost time, uh, which of course, adds extra pressure to get their research done. Uh, and ultimately, they're working longer hours to, to try and compensate for that. Uh, also, many individuals reported that they were feeling lonely because they've not physically seen their family and friends uh, for quite mm. some time. So again, the, the, there was no emotional support system there for them. So this this tells us that there's a huge need uh, for support within the school and wider than that, I think. And, you know, we're certainly going to continue to engage and keep keep these issues at the top of our agenda. It's obviously COVID's, you know, the impact of COVID it has been, um, you know, I just can't use the words anymore. It's been awful, yeah. obviously. But, and as Alison touched on it a little bit, there perhaps there is something that positive that is, you know, the, the, the spotlight is there are probably people who are suffering with mental health that didn't realise they were suffering with mental health issues before. And so now it's, people are a bit, hopefully a, a bit more aware, I suppose, Jane, of, of this. And it, it sounds like that's something you're perhaps trying to, hone in on as as well at, at the university and um, can I just ask as well final final question um do you have a specific case study or a specific is there someone who's you you could talk about who's sort of really benefited from this yeah we've got a brilliant success story actually mm. um so building on on the team's success over the past few years we we've collaborated with a local charity called open door and we were able to offer an online eight-week cbt uh, which is cognitive behavioral therapy program to various researchers and academics within the school engagement was brilliant 
excellent for the programme. Um, it was excellent. We, we had an 80% completion rate. And of the sessions, the, the CBT sessions that they completed, 46% of them were rated as fantastic. 40% were rated as really helpful and 14% were rated as helpful. And I think this was particularly well-timed because the beneficiaries completed the programme during the start of the COVID-19 pandemic last year, which was really quite timely. We also done a, a case study of one particular person who completed the study who had been struggling with their mental health issues for a number of years, actually, since their, since their late teens. They had a significant anxiety. They had a bleak outlook on life and they really found it very difficult to see how things could improve, which also contributed to their increased stress. They also identified that they did think in a black and white way. However, the techniques that they practiced during the CBT program were particularly helpful for them. And this individual now incorporates mindfulness into their regular routine. They meditate daily and they've reported that they now have a sense of optimism and a new lease of life, actually, in regards to studying science, which is great. They're feeling much more positive about the future. And I think more importantly, that they're prepared to know how to deal with the challenges, if if any, that they face um, in the future. And they're also looking forward to completing their studies and moving forward in life. So I think this has proven that, you know, initiatives like CBT, it's so encouraging actually to hear that individuals have really benefited in a positive way from the programme. Um, so with this in mind, we're really um, quite thrilled actually to continue our collaboration with Open Door, and we're going to be rolling out another CBT programme, this time across the whole faculty um, of science and engineering and we're hoping to start this next month in May. Really interesting to see a tangible personal out story as well coming coming as well from all the hard work that, that you're doing so um, that's brilliant. Thanks Jane, thanks Alison, hang on. Right so now on to the, the final guest and by certainly no means least and I've got um, Adrian Huxley who is the uh, workshop and facilities manager at Singer Instruments. They manufacture, they manufacture scientific instruments. Now when I was researching for this podcast there was a case study from the HSC, the Health and Safety Executive which cited some of the work that Singer had done and Adrian had done in their approach to to well-being and I think this is a real testament actually that that the HSE are, are saying this this is a good this is a good template to to follow so they're also a fairly small organization I think 50 60 about yeah. employees Adrian yeah, um definitely. and while I guess larger firms can perhaps you know Bigger firms can perhaps afford to have more resources to to incorporate someone specifically to look on and to, for mental health. Perhaps things fall through the gaps in smaller organisations, SMEs, whereas it's it can be tricky to keep to keep tabs on, which is why I think Adrian's story makes is 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 more prevalent. So anyway, I got in touch with Adrian. We had a couple of Zoom calls and stuff, and got to know each other, and um, it was a really interesting to to speak to Adrian also his personal story as well which I hope you won't mind me mentioning and things that he's he's gone through almost in a way helped what he instigated a, a singer so we'll, we'll we'll come on to that now but um 
Adrian, thanks, thanks for, for joining me and, and coming on. I wonder if we could begin about this, the initial how, uh, this initial when HSC, the, the, the story of the HSE cited, I think it was back in 2012, when there were a couple of your em- employees who went off with issues, if, if, if you like. Could you just run through what happened back then and, and what you did to sort of turn, to try and turn it around? Well, this was back 2012. The company was smaller then. We only had 20 employees. Two of these were off sick with work-related stress. And the MD at the time asked me if I would do something about it. So I started a journey for me. I, yeah. I had to learn a lot of stuff. I brought a consultant in to talk about it, to talk to me about it. They also talked to all the staff about it, about the cause and effect of stress. It's clear that when someone is in a situation like that, they feel they can't go into work. It's all about communication, as much communication as possible and understanding. So uh, we started off by having conversations with the two of them separately, understanding what the problem was, what we could do to fix it. It was clear that they were both overloaded work-wise, so we took on extra stuff to address that. And then the Two people that were off, they went through a phased return to work. They start off, they do a half a day, then a one day a week, and they go to two days and, and ease themselves back into it like that. Sure, that's, we'll, we'll dive down to that and a few of the later questions. But actually, I wanted to come back about, um, to you know, bring it to 2020 and, and the impact of COVID and what, what that's had on, on, on the workplace. What, what have you seen in the last 12, 12 months or, or so? And has that initial, um, what happened initially back in 2012, has that helped prepare you for, for what's happened last year? When we went, went into lockdown first a year ago, initially everyone was terrified of this disease because they had no understanding of it, you know. And the other fear was what would be the economic effects. So initially, for the first three weeks of lockdown, most of the staff were at home while we evaluated what was going on. And then as we understood it more, we, as a manufacturing company, we had to bring some back in on site. But we still had about 70% working at home. As time has gone on and people learn more about it and so on, that uh, we find we can bring people in rather than keeping people at home all the time. We bring them back into work probably one day a week, different staff on different days, and we find we can do that and still keep the environment safe. Sure. And how are people reacting to, to coming back into the the environment? Are they a bit anxious still? <laughs> Trusting? When people are working at home all the time, some mm. people can become anxious about that. They feel isolated. Yeah. And we're finding that bringing them back in one day a week, it, it, they feel more a part of the organisation than when if they were at home, you know. Yeah, absolutely. When I was researching this, Adrian, and then one of the, 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 the initiatives that you've got in place is, is how you personally make yourself available to stuff, that you're seen as someone almost independent from the business, doesn't have any day-to-day targets if you like how how important is that from the staff's point of view to see you in in that light as someone almost uh, yeah like a little bit of an island really i think that's it's crucial it's crucial because they know that anything they say to me then will stay with me and i will help them without judgment yeah yeah and then actually this is this is an interesting point we've been talking a lot about how it's okay not to be okay heather touched on it and jane and and you know this idea of just yeah, there is no right or wrong. That is something that you've been try- quite keen to initiate as well. How's, how's, how have you done that and how's it, how's it gone down and how have people taken that on board? 
we've, I've been talking about it for a long time, but the, the MD and I realised that we had to do something to enforce the message, and we thought we, we'd make ourselves vulnerable and talk about ourselves. Right. So, so we spoke to everyone separately about difficult things that we've been through in life. We really opened up, and that seemed to hit home with everybody because the following over the following week, I had a, a virtual queue of people wanted to talk about me about stuff. Most of it not work-related. There's just stuff they wanted to talk about. So it's by opening up myself like that, it's showed other people that you can be okay. It's okay to not be okay, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's such an important saying. It's okay not to be okay. There's so much to be said for it, how important it is. And I, I don't know, it's a difficult thing to sort of shift, but it's really interesting to hear and, and really encouraging to hear that that you're, that what you're instigating, people are just talking about non-work-related stuff and feel comfortable coming coming to you. But also the point that you made is, as you, as you said, the business is it's still a family-run business. Is that right? It's family-owned, yeah. yeah. Family-owned business. But the bosses have obviously bought into it, which is, I think, really, really important. Heather will probably agree as well. If the bosses, if you're, if they, if the people at the top end buy in, then it's going to help, and that's obviously helps with you. Would you say? I think any kind of matter like this, it has to start at the top of the company and trickle down. If it doesn't start at the top, then people won't believe it, and it, it will, it will almost certainly fail. And I'm lucky that I have an MD that is very keen to promote this kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Well, I gather in some businesses, that's not always the case. Some business owners will say, well, health and safety, what's what's in it for me in the bottom line? You know, why why should I do it? They don't understand that the the well-being of employees does improve the bottom line. Yeah, 100%. I can can see Heather nodding as as well. I think... It's a shame, actually. Of course, it does affect productivity as well. And it's things with most things. If if it's going to hit the pocket, then some people are forced to change, aren't they? Perhaps in big big business, if if it's going to have have an effect, and it perhaps should be come from a, a different approach of of wanting to do it rather than it, it's going to it's going to help the bottom line. But this is the society. But it sounds like some the the, the MD at Singer is someone who passionately cares cares about it anyway, which is which, which is which is wonderful. Adrian, you're now and and, and correct me if I've got my, my, my details and my names wrong but you're you're a champion for the prevention of stress is that through the HSC or that that you've been been given this this title that's just a very grand title the, the HSC <laughs> gave me that <laughs> yeah it's, well deserved. <laughs> it's sort of an appreciation for sticking with it I think <laughs> well that that aside I mean do you what what do you enjoy about it I, I assume it's just helping other people is it not yes helping other people it's quite rewarding, isn't it? Seeing people smile, seeing people feel that they can go to work again and, and talk to other people about stuff. And you can't buy that sort of thing. You know? Final question, Adrian, and, and just wanted to touch on, as you sort of said, about your own, own personal journey as well. You're now a, a, a qualified psych- psychotherapist um, that, yeah. that, you, that you've done um, and have been for ne- nearly five years, which I think is absolutely wonderful. How, tell me, how did this come a, come about? What made you want, want to do it? And... Yeah, how, how, how has it helped also with your work as a singer? When people began to come to me to talk about their own personal stuff, I was answering as best as I could at the time. And I thought that if they're going to share this really personal stuff with me, that I should learn how to handle it properly, how to be the best I can for them. And so I started training back in 2012 in, in counselling to begin with and then in psychotherapy. And uh, if I find that I can put, 
when I'm working with someone, I can put together a more structured approach and help them better than if I didn't know about this thing. Uh, thanks so much, Adrian. I'll come back to you in a, in a minute with, with that final question, but I appreciate you um, sharing your thoughts. This final question I want to, to ask each of the, the, the speakers before before we sign off, and um, it's more of an overview question, I suppose, really, as a journalist. It's not a particularly good question because there are so many elements to it. It's not straight to the point. But I want to say, Heather, how important is well-being to you? Do you think there is more, well, hopefully there is, there's more emphasis on mental health these days, say, than, than 10 years ago? Where do you think it's heading and what do we need to do to get more awareness out there? God, that is a multifaceted question. Terrible question, right, isn't, isn't it? It? <laughs> it really is. So for me, I think the the way I like to look at my own well-being is about quality of life, really. Mm. So it's what kind of quality of life do I want to have and what am I prepared to do in order to get that quality of life, I think. So that's the first thing. I absolutely think we are moving in the right direction. I think that uh, it feels always feels too slow to me. We we're still too fixated on what goes wrong as opposed to what can go right. And that's really where my positive psychology angle comes in is looking at what we as human beings can do to have the best possible life we can and ensure that we don't fall into anxiety and fall into that pit. And I appreciate that sometimes it's impossible. It just happens. But there are things that we can do proactively to actually stay out of that pit as best we possibly can. And understanding those, I think, is where we need to be moving. I absolutely love Adrian's story. Thank you so much for bringing him here and sharing that because there's still issues, I think, huge issues around men talking about this stuff. I want some men who are prepared to go out and talk to their mates. And I also think that we in this country don't look enough at how men and women deal with things differently. If you look at research overseas, it's a lot more robust and a lot more prepared to admit that women may develop anxiety where men are far more likely to get angry. Now, I don't think that's that's not absolutely the case for everybody. And obviously, there's a continuum involved there. But I just think that recognising that men and women deal with things differently and men are there's some research done by the University of Gothenburg that shows that men are actually supporting their mental health really well when they're with, with groups of other men, for example. So actually understanding that type of thing, as opposed to trying to put our female model onto this is the way men are supposed to deal with things, I think is also something that we need to be acknowledging much more in this country and is acknowledged much more in other Mediterranean countries or in other parts of Europe. So that's really, and, and then over and above that, as I said, as I said on my little mini rant at the, at the beginning, government has to pick this up. It, you know, it's no good just talking about well-being as a nice fluffy thing. It has to be integrated into everything, you know, our economic policies, getting people out of poverty, childhood. If our brains aren't given the right food in childhood, and I don't mean just nutrition, I mean support in childhood, we are setting ourselves up for a lifetime of difficulties. So if we don't put investment in there, then we're not helping ourselves as a, as a society moving forward. So those are the areas that I think we need to be moving forward with next. Perfect, perfect, Heather. Thank you. Some really good points there. Really, really good points. 
Jane, can I throw the, that big question to you as well, if that's okay? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think, you know, as we've all acknowledged here today that, you know, COVID's presented many challenges. And I think in, in relation to the, the, the academic environment that, that I'm in, it's been a really, really tough, tough time for many students, academic and professional services staff that, you know, have all been enormously impacted in lots of different ways, actually. I truly believe that psychological health is is most at risk during periods of significant disruption. And we need to acknowledge, and like Heather's just said, government need to acknowledge that we're all living much more stressful lives these days and we're having to multitask and juggle things all of the time. And I, I, I think life for many is certainly not the same now as it was 10 years ago. I think things are very, very different and we need to stand up and we need to acknowledge that and do something about it. I think, you know, COVID-19 has not only shown that, that our health and well-being are so vitally important to us all, but I think the world works best as a community. And again, the government need to do something about that. And I think Adrian touched on it earlier about the buy-in from the top of the company and then it trickles down throughout the whole organisation. We do need to work as a community to help people who are struggling with this. Uh, we really need to prioritise our health and well-being because for some people, this could be for the very first time in their lives. And particularly, you know, as Heather uh, mentioned about men, it's not perhaps something men naturally uh, prioritise in their lives. Well, perhaps that, that needs to change now. Specifically in relation to the School of Physical Sciences, we're, we're embedding well-being in everything we do. We've got a great well-being team. You know, I've talked about all the initiatives and things that, we, that we've done. And I think we just need to accelerate these events and initiatives across the University of Liverpool now. And I think post-pandemic, I'm, I'm quite optimistic that the hard work and resilience of our wellbeing team, I think it will truly pay off and make a real impact on the lives of our staff, researchers and academics together. Thanks, Jane. Alison, can I come come to you with that question? I think wellbeing, you know, it's it's obviously important for all of us to to look after ourselves and each other. I mean, you know, you you really can't thrive if you're not looking after yourself. You you need to um, sort of try your best to keep on top of stuff, and it's not easy. Like we've all got different struggles. Everyone's got you know different problems and things, and I think. It's, there's no quick fix to it, but certainly trying to look after yourself is uh, very important. I think in terms of sort of how mental health is being discussed these days, I think certainly we've come a long way from the kind of stigma behind any kind of discussions about your mental health and like how people would be more inclined to sort of just power through and get on with it and, you know, just sort of muddle through. But I think, you know, we've certainly developed a lot more empathy for other people who admit that they're struggling with stuff because I think we all struggle every now and then and I think it's important to have these conversations but I do think that there's still some stigma with more complex mental health issues and I think that's something that as a society we need to sort of look at I think there are personality disorders and psychosis and things like that which are still heavily like not discussed and I think there's a sort of lack of understanding on those issues which I think hopefully will sort of 
it will come to the forefront soon, I hope, and then people will be able to discuss anything that that is troubling them with their mental health. Thanks, Alison. And, and Adrian, yeah, final final word word to you. I think there are two things that do concern me at the moment. One is, as Jane already said, about men's attitude to mental health and that they don't talk about stuff. Some see it as a sign of weakness. Some believe that it's something that they should be able to sort out on their own. And some think that people will think less of them if they talk about things like this. We need to do much more to reinforce the message that it's okay to talk about stuff and it's okay to not be okay. The other thing that concerns me is that in general health and safety, there is enormous amount of legislation to keep people physically safe at work but there's very little to cover people's emotional well-being regards provision of things such as mental health first aiders and so forth that should be mandatory now we all need to work harder to try and get this put through central government absolutely thanks adrian gosh this is there's there's more that i think could be could be discussed here we've perhaps just touched on the surface but it's it's all been really 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 great really insightful and um and i thank sort of everybody for for coming on and and sharing uh, their stories and 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 initiatives we'll uh, hopefully see you next time and in, in the meantime take care thank you very much information about us visit iom3.org or to keep up to date with our latest news follow us on social media using at iom3 on twitter and at the institute of materials minerals and mining on linkedin if you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved please subscribe to hear more from us through apple google podcasts or spotify